This episode of the What The Fintech Podcast is sponsored by Chargebacks 911. Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of What The Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor of Fintech Futures, and for this episode, we're joined by Monica Eaton, founder and CEO of Chargebacks 911. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time out to speak with me, and it's great to have you on the show this week. Just to get started, we'd like to quickly let us know a bit more about yourself and the work you're doing at Chargebacks 911. Sure. I founded the company 12 years ago in 2011, and I've been involved in product, technology, just like any founder, probably have had my hands in every single pot. Thankfully, we have an amazing team. And today I'm the CEO, but I still have a terrific influence in product. I don't know that I'm ever going to leave our product team. I think that's you know a core passion. And I probably share uh, that common denominator with many CEOs and founders. Excellent. Sounds great. So on the show this week, I mean, we're going to be diving into the world of chargebacks with a look at how they can impact businesses, the rise of chargeback fraud and how that can be combated, and the work companies such as Chargebacks 911 are doing in the field to ease chargeback management for businesses. And of course, with Black Friday and the holiday season on the horizon, we'll take a look at how consumer behavior has evolved in recent years and how US consumers view transaction disputes these days. That's all to come a bit later, but as always, to get us started is our news and number segment. So this is where our guest has gone out and found a new story featuring an interesting number to discuss. So Monica, what have you brought along for us today? So I think if we take a look at what's getting ready to hit with Black Friday coming up around the horizon, I think something that we always end up tackling year after year is really taking a look at historically how chargebacks have affected the market. Black Friday is arguably the biggest selling event worldwide, it seems now, <laughs> definitely in the U.S. market. But because many of these merchants are also cross-border, this is something that this, these are new trends that we're seeing as well. It's not just Americans that are buying. These types of sales also generate a lot of interest outside of the U.S. So that's one trend that we're seeing that has continued to pick up, especially on the back of COVID. And then, interestingly, so another thing that we always want to look at is refund trends, not just chargebacks, but what's the return behavior and the refund behavior? What's consumer behavior look, looking like? Now, logically, you would think because the economy isn't as strong as it could be, there's some financial instability, the markets have forecasted a bit of a downturn, and for that to continue. Interestingly, what we see in terms of chargebacks and spending doesn't necessarily align. So there is still you know, significant amounts of spending, lots of credit cards being used, people overspending, overbuying. And, and in terms of uh, return fraud or even returning merchandise, a, a recent study from Salesforce stated around 13% of all, all merchandise was returned last year from Black Friday. This year, based on what we're seeing, it's probably going to be around 30%, maybe 20, 25 to 30%. So almost more than a double, actually, because the climate right now, it's kind of a catch-22. So we have people have a tendency to buy more than they need, especially when there's great offers, when there's great sales. And let's face it, if you use a credit card, then you also have zero life, 
0% liability, you're protected in that transaction. And there is a terrific amount of promotional campaigns and advertisements that really advocate, hey, buy it now, try it out, see if you like it, you can always return it. And if you're like me, like probably all of us, frankly, how many times do you buy something and you just forget to return it? It happens to all of us, especially with you know how much we're buying online with that idea, hey, I don't really need this, but I'm going to see if I like it. Maybe I'll keep it. I have 30 days. I have 60 days. Maybe I have 90 days to return it. And then you forget to return it. Well, what ends up happening, these consumers receive their bank statements, their credit card statements, and now that painful expense really creates a tremendous temptation to contact their bank, make a claim. So anyway, welcome to the growth of chargebacks. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's obviously quite 13% of all orders, quite a big number. You say you're predicting potentially going to be coming up towards like 30% as well. I mean, what impact is all of these returns having then on businesses? I believe in the philosophy, and I think this is just common sense. The biggest risk to a business is a business that is not making money. Because these are businesses, they can't pay their bills, they make poor decisions, maybe they don't have enough FTE resources. And so that is absolutely the biggest risk to any business. Despite the fact that I'm in the chargeback industry, which is another type of liability, a business that is not making money is a higher risk than a business that gets a lot of chargebacks. And probably those two are linked, maybe. So when you look at high amounts of returns, high amounts of refunds, the, the refund fraud that's going on, or consumers calling merchants, asking for a refund, threatening to file a chargeback, and fraudulently getting refunds by re- returning false merchandise. I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios. This has an impact to the merchant's margin, to their bottom line. And it's not just the cost of the loss of merchandise. It's the cost of the advertising dollar, the servicing of that. And oftentimes, when we start to see increased returns, subsequently, we also see an increase in chargebacks. And these are a bit of a parallel line because it really represents or it represents that consumers are possibly spending more than they have or they're ordering, what do we call it? Like there was something that I saw like midnight sprees. So interestingly, if we take a look at statistics, another super interesting statistic, but if we look at the shopping behaviors, when the majority of overspending is occurring, there are specific trends that show that a significant uptick in purchases are happening after 11 o'clock at night. So if you just think, okay, have you had a lot to drink? Are you completely coherent? Are you, I mean, you know, what kind of decision-making are, are you really bringing to the table at that point? And we all probably do this, but, you know, a lot of mobile spending and, and overspending has a tendency to lead to hopefully just product returns, but it's not just returns. It's returns, it's chargebacks, it's complaints, the whole gamut. All of those factors contribute to a reduction and losses for merchants that have to be made up in other ways. And those other ways may be restricted policies. It may be restocking fees. It may be different promotions. So yeah, definitely trickle-down effects in multiple directions.
obviously, as, as you mentioned, now in Black Friday, the holiday shopping season starting soon, potentially busiest period then for, for chargeback activity. I mean, how do most Americans view transaction disputes, you think, these days? Well, I think you have to segment the market, right? So if we take consumers, and we're all consumers at the end of the day, and as you know, I spent a long time in the UK, so I understand you know, the diversity and some of the different views, and the American marketplace is much more you know, we're interested, of course, all consumers are interested in having a secure environment in having a better customer experience. But what we're really interested in is fast. <laughs> and it's actually fascinating because living in the UK, we had contactless. And then I would come back to the States. I'm like, what is going on with this market? <laughs> it's so archaic. I can't stand having to insert my card and like wait for a full second. But that contactless method, it just becomes so efficient that even spending one more second at checkout seemed like a chore. So now let's switch the table and take a look at e-commerce. And what has happened at e-commerce is one-click checkouts. You want everything safe for you. You don't want to have to read anything. And you just want that automation. And with more and more U.S. cardholders driving automation needs, demands, wants, what we're seeing as trends is this isn't just taking place in terms of e-commerce purchases. It is trickling through the entire ecosystem. So as a consumer today, I also want my bank to be on demand. I want anyone that I communicate with, I want them to be open 24-7, 365. <laughs> and then I want instant satisfaction. Let's look at what Amazon has created. It doesn't matter that the standards or best practices may be two weeks, one week for delivery. You know that with the competitive market and the landscape today, if consumers that buy a product, most of us have been trained by Amazon already. We expect that delivery maybe today, in a couple hours, by tomorrow. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the new standard because it's the new expectation. And the same thing is happening in the chargeback space. So in the U.S. market, it's very common and it's, it's a competitive advantage for issuing banks that just through my mobile device, I can click a button and dispute a transaction. I want that concierge service and that creates loyalty. I also never want to be declined. So other behaviors that may be you know, at risk of inadvertently tr driving chargebacks is an effort to ensure that as a consumer, I never experience a false decline or an invalid decline then my bank may approve a transaction temporarily and then send me an SMS text message to just validate, was this actually your transaction because something you know, appeared suspect? So I like to coin this age as kind of age of entitlement. And me, myself, I would say I'm also an entitled consumer. We all are, if we're really honest. <laughs> we want things. It's no longer that we're concerned about security. Statistics have shown that element is really the, the card networks, the whole ecosystem has done a great job at continuing to bolster security to really arrive at a level of confidence where most consumers don't think twice about security. What we do think about is convenience, fast, <laughs> efficient, we expect, and actually what we want is now transformed into a need 
that is necessary for the markets to continue to compete. And that is a challenge that we have with the banks. Excellent. And switching to the the merchant side then, is there anything that businesses can do to try and prevent these payment disputes from occurring from the outset? Yeah. I mean, look, you're never just a level set. As a merchant, if you do business online, especially, you're never going to get away with no chargebacks. You'll have disputes. It's not a taboo subject that means that you're doing something necessarily wrong. Many, many disputes and chargebacks are filed accidentally just because the consumer doesn't recognize what shows up on the charge that could be completely out of the control of the merchant. So one of the first things that I always advise merchants and business owners to do is to make sure that they know exactly what consumers are seeing on their credit card statements, on their banking app, and ensure that that information is the best description of what that consumer may have purchased. So for example, and this has all happened to us, I may see a transaction on my mobile app that says um, ABC, M-E-R-C, and then a series of numbers. I have no idea what it is. And what's worse is in the States, it will also show the state for the, where the merchant is registered. So now I'm immediately assuming, oh my gosh, that's a transaction from Texas. I wasn't even in Texas. <laughs> so automatically, I'm assuming it's fraud. I'm not going to attempt to track down who that merchant is or investigate it. And instead, a merchant can be aware of what shows and then contact their bank, try to show a URL for your company name, make sure that you have a description that relates to your product. That's first and foremost, a great way to help deter unnecessary chargebacks. And then secondly, stay in communication with your customers. So the idea of to sell it and forget it. That's not a good philosophy. And one of the statistics that merchants need to recognize is that an e-commerce transaction is over 50 times more likely to turn into a chargeback than a face-to-face transaction. And if you think about it, some of it is bizarre, right? For a face-to-face transaction, if you're upset about a product that you purchased, well, you will go back to that store Even if they're closed on the weekends, they're only open until 2 p.m., you will find a way to go back and handle things at that store. If you purchase something online, you expect that merchant to address your needs 24-7, 365, and chances are you're not even going to contact the merchant. You're just going to contact your bank. So what this tells us is it's human nature. We have a connection with other humans. And what we don't have a connection with is virtual businesses. And so one of the tasks for online merchants is to focus on creating that fabric of humanity, humanizing themselves, creating relationships, and really personalizing the the messaging and get to know your customers. And this is all done through great communication. For example, if you have a consumer that purchases, you know, send them a, a thank you email, give them a link, send them a newsletter, like just make sure that you really advocate communication so they don't have to find out how to cancel a subscription. They don't have to search on Google to find out where you are. Chances are, you know, you've been transparent. You've reminded them what they've purchased. Take it for granted as a merchant that probably your consumers are not reading the terms and conditions (laughs) as much as we'd all like to say, because they've checked that box. You don't do it. 
I don't probably, I mean, none of us do it. So just like admit the results that it doesn't matter and take more responsibility. Maybe communicate with them and remind them, this is what you bought. This is what is coming. Don't forget about X. (laughs) But all of those things, they don't just work to help prevent chargebacks, but they also help humanize organizations and build a better relationship for long-term retention of customers that are expensive to acquire in the first place. You mentioned there that obviously all merchant businesses are going to experience chargebacks as we enter busy shopping periods like we are now, the number will likely increase. I mean, when these disputes do come in, what are the processes that merchants have to follow to manage these and, and work out the validity of these claims as well? Sure, so great question. So many merchants, they are focused on getting sales and refunding. And chargebacks are something that's an after effect that they can pick up the pieces with later. Totally wrong solution for many, many reasons. So when it comes to chargebacks, every chargeback has a due date or an expiration date. And what's important when a merchant, first of all, it's important to make sure that you have access to all of your chargebacks in a timely fashion, as real time as possible. Secondly, make sure that you understand what the chargeback data is telling you. So dependent on the merchant provider that you're with, you'll probably have different types of data. It's not all exactly the same. So one task that you have is to normalize that. Each chargeback has reason codes, but here's what's important. Even if you see a reason code, you could see a reason code on a chargeback that says fraud, for example. Don't take that for granted. That doesn't mean that it's actually fraud. And you have to consider this is a reason that could have been established by an innocent consumer that just didn't recognize the charge, just like the example that I gave. And as a result, an innocent consumer who can't remember that your descriptor that's showing on their credit card statement says something totally different than your than the product that they purchased. And so they file a claim and that claim is sent to you and coded as fraud. Now, Your job as a merchant is to always investigate each and every claim. And moreover, I recommend providing a response on every single claim. That response is either you're going to identify that the source of that claim was actually fraud. Maybe you have a problem with your fraud filter. Correct those rules and accept liability on that case. That's going to be your response. You're accepting liability, leave a note on that customer's record, or You may investigate that claim and identify that actually this cardholder, the consumer never contacted you. It was a misunderstanding. And this particular chargeback was filed in error. In that case, make sure that you understand all of the rules and all of the document requirements and the formatting requirements for your merchant provider so that you can challenge that case and provide a good defense. And that is incredibly helpful. And it's not just about, you know, winning the chargeback, because as a merchant, if you contest a case and you you can remedy that case and prove this shouldn't have happened in the first place, then you'll receive a refund of any funds that you would have been debited for that transaction amount. But one of the most important benefits in challenging invalid cases or accidentally filed wrongfully filed claims, whatever the case may be, is that you are able to educate the consumer and the banks 
that actually this was a mistake. If you don't send anything to defend yourself and you just accept liability, even if let's say it's a 10 pound transaction, it may seem like it's just not enough money to even bother with. But the problem is if you don't provide a defense, if you don't set the record straight, then that 10 pound transaction has the ability to create, to impact rules because you're really confirming that actually that was fraud. <laughs> and that will affect your acceptance rates, which is significantly a much higher cost than any chargeback expense you may have in responding to the chargebacks. And then last but not least, make sure that you are monitoring your chargebacks, that you're aware of each the card scheme rules. Of course, we're a technology platform. I always recommend, dependent on the volume of chargebacks, whether you have 10 chargebacks or thousands of chargebacks, this is probably not a core competency of any business. And so where it's not a core competency, I've always believed businesses do best that they focus on their core business and their software solutions that are available that help, you know, really automate a lot of these processes so that your team can stay focused on what they do best, which should be correcting any problems that may be causing these chargebacks and helping to prevent them from continuing in the future. Excellent. I mean, you've touched on chargeback fraud there as well. How much of an issue is this becoming now? And what kind of trends are you seeing there? And, and how difficult is it for firms to, to kind of work out and, and spot that fraud when, when the chargebacks come through? I would say it's a rising epidemic at this point. And we can see that, I think, by some of the movements in the industry. So just to define first, so chargeback fraud, it's also coined as friendly fraud, first party fraud. So it's a bit of a confusing term. And I actually, I used to hate the term friendly fraud. Now I sort of have warmed up to it only because I think it's very similar to friendly fire. It's something that shouldn't have happened. It's an innocent like issue that actually hurt everybody in the whole scenario. <laughs> and so this is chargeback fraud is a chargeback that shouldn't have happened. Now, sometimes they're accidentally filed. Oftentimes they're maliciously filed. Sometimes they start as an accident and then consumers are trained in this instant reward that they get from filing a claim and then almost immediately seeing that transaction amount was refunded or it appears to be refunded. They're no longer responsible for that so they can reduce their credit card bill by making a quick call to their bank. So it's a damaging stat and it continues to grow. The reason why it's an epidemic and it's continuing to, to grow at such a fast pace, in my opinion, it's simply because of the consumer demands and that the collision with the evolution in technology and payments. So what I mean by that is if we look at what's gone on in the payment industry, there's been tremendous momentum in creating all sorts of new payment methods, new channels, and the word frictionless is everywhere. In fact, I was talking with a group of compliance specialists the other day, and they, they called it the F word. Like, it literally, it, it has been that, it's been that detrimental in some ways. <laughs> so with frictionless in the sales process, of course, you get more sales, we have less responsible consumers because they're not going to be reading through all these terms and conditions. But you know what? 
it's really driving a lot of momentum and let's face it, like that's what we want. We want things to be frictionless. We want things to be seamless. The problem is those wants and needs have also been attributed in the chargeback space. And not just because of what's been happening in the sales process in the front end, but if we look at what happened with COVID, this also has created, has been a catalyst to a lot of movement in increasing chargeback volumes. So for example, in COVID, the world got hit with all sorts of chargebacks, quite legitimate. Businesses going out of business in administration, travel agencies going, I mean, we had a financial crisis on several levels, not to mention the whole world migrated to new online environments. Those new online environments not only included new loopholes for fraud, but also new businesses that are novice. They have no idea what they're doing. They're in an, a new type of arena. And so it's a trial and error process that forever changed the structural fabric of how things work. Now, in order to keep pace and, and help satisfy the financial instability and crisis, then there was no way to maintain a significant amount of friction, or for that matter, almost any friction in the chargeback space. So if a bank is receiving 100 calls every day, and then all of a sudden COVID hits and they're getting 1,000, there's no possible way that they can keep pace and meet their regulatory obligations and even maintain the financial stability for all of their cardholders and consumers. So what happened, because it was necessary, is we migrated to a digital method, no questions asked. You can click a couple buttons, like actually, let's just solve this problem immediately, resolve the chargeback issue. We're going to make it fast. We're going to make it efficient. And let's create some digital transformation. And unfortunately, removing the friction almost entirely sometimes out of that process has increased the amount of chargebacks. I can tell you one study that was published uh, in the UK, actually, not even in the US, is that, you know, in the wake of just migrating or giving consumers the option to make a claim through their mobile device, increased chargebacks and disputes for one specific issuer by 33% in a matter of six weeks. So, I mean, it's astonishing. And I love removing friction, but we have to do it in a way that we're really considering all of those impacts. And maybe what we need to do is look at Look, we're always going to get more chargebacks. They're growing by 20% year over year. And so really the challenge for the industry is not trying to stop chargebacks because we're not going to stop. It's a flywheel effect that we have right now. And this is what consumers want and it's the behavior and we need to protect consumers. But what we need to do is we need to recategories and redefine what is a chargeback and what type of claims really should carry a penalty and a statistic. And if we look at that cross-section, then I think we'll establish a lot more balance where it's not a guilty before it proven innocent type of statistic. Instead, we need a shift in that merchants are given an opportunity to provide their defense up front. And only if they can't remedy a case, 
then they're given a negative statistic. And hopefully we'll evolve to that stance to help even the tide. Excellent. And with chargeback activity increasing, you mentioned earlier the technology is there now for businesses to manage their chargeback processes. So looking at Chargeback's 911 then, can you tell us more about your offering in terms of the technologies you've deployed and, and how you differ from other players in the space? So I think one of our biggest differentiations is that we operate globally. So we operate in just about every country and we handle any type of currency. One of the challenges when you consider chargebacks is if you have an e-commerce site and you're a merchant or a financial institution, then it's becoming more and more of a borderless community. So 10 years ago, it used to be if you're doing business in the U.S., it's only the U.S. And now we do have a lot of cross-border interactions. So one competitive advantage that we have is that we've always been in the international market. We have a team, our headquarters for our international region is based out of London, but we have a team in the U.K., in India and Singapore, and of course, stateside and continuing to grow globally. And what that means is that we understand all the different rules, privacy, like all the complexities that literally can differ, not just between every single card scheme, but also the different payment methods, different regions, different geographies, different card types, whether it's credit, debit, consumer, commercial, there's lots of complexities when it comes to being able to process the different chargeback rules. And it's one of those arenas where you know, what you don't know will hurt you. So, so that's one thing. And I'll give you three top things that, that keep us, that I would say, differentiate that. So, so one is our global reach, geography, et cetera. The second is our technology. So our technology includes a terrific amount of connections, up to 1,000 different file type and plug-in connections, which allows any, type, any merchant and financial institution to really streamline their implementation and integration process and be able to standardize data that can be consumed in different formats to give them scale and scope. And with those data elements, then we also utilize AI and machine learning that affords merchants of any type of vertical in any industry the ability to process chargeback data and defend those chargebacks with a dynamic payload. And what that means is today's merchant, let's say ABC merchant in the digital space, if the way that legacy systems work is you have very defined data fields and there's a very defined integration process and it's not really dynamic. So if a merchant adds, let's say in the future, it would be some type of biotechnology fingerprinting, but it's like a different field that we haven't even thought of today. Now that is a specific data attribute that does, should be monitored. It should be, the merchant should have access to that. So what our software does is we, the merchant can supply any type of payload with an expansive data set. And we utilize machine learning and AI to help parse that automatically and then segregate that so that the merchant has those rich analytics. They're in a position where they're able to manage those patterns and make decisions faster and better without a huge technology lift. So we're a SaaS company 
in the cloud, microservices. And I definitely think technology is, it's exciting. There's lots of change that's going on, which gives a lot of opportunities for us. Innovation in the payment space, most companies look at, you know, I just want to automate these 10 things. And our approach has been unique in that we really want to look at how do we solve the problem better, which may mean actually you don't need those 10 things. It's really these two items and we need to make things more intelligent. So definitely the, the software that we have, the connectivity, the reach in different verticals. And then third, I would be amiss if I didn't say our team and our people. And I think we're at an unprecedented time in technology where there's so much technology. You read about chat GPT. I mean, it's like literally the entire industry. It's exciting, but it's also terrifying of, of just how much technology is leveling the playing field that I think any organization, you can't just bet on having the best technology. And it really always comes down to the right people and that having the right team. And that doesn't just mean having tremendous expertise and deep expertise, but it also means having great clients and the right strategic partners and those long-term relationships that we've invested a decade in and knowing that the team is really positioned with the same exact mission. We're all fighting for the, the same cause and it's more of, it's not just a job. I, I think that's important. The company culture is important and it really is the people that make the difference in the long run, year over year. You realize, especially as a, a founder in this organization, how many incredible entrepreneurs are within our organization. It's not just me. I look at the ingenious ideas of people that have that same owner mentality. And that is definitely something that I'd say is a differentiator. Excellent. Excellent. And just briefly to finish things off, I mean, looking into the future, do you feel like we're approaching a peak now with chargebacks? Or do you think as more friction gets removed from processes that actually we're still going to keep seeing an increasing number of chargebacks and that businesses is going to have a, a growing need to manage this? Yeah. So I think that we need to look at things. I mean, I hope we start to see that chargeback as a negative statistic goes down. That hasn't been what has happened historically. So I would estimate that instead, I guess, a better way to, to slice and dice this is what we should be looking at as an industry is not chargebacks. We should look at the amount of claims that are coming in because that's a much better barometer to identify. Has consumer behavior changed? Do we need to add friction? Do we need to remove friction? What do we need to do? Because I think we're going to continue to see a massive increase in the amount of claims and dispute inquiries. And the challenge for the industry will be how to temper and really help redefine what is a chargeback, i.e. what has a negative penalty attached versus what is a dispute inquiry that may be able to be resolved out of, away from being defined as a chargeback, but it's still in the same vein. If you're asking, hey, do I think that consumers are going to all of a sudden decide not to contact their bank? No, because it's easy. It's convenient. And as a consumer myself, you know what? It, it is if I need to cancel three subscriptions online and I can just make one quick call to my bank, better yet, I don't even have to call them. If I'm in the U.S., 
I can go to my mobile banking app and just click a button, then I'm going to do that. You know, that's, and that behavior is something that I don't think that we should try to deter and push back. This is the way that things are, are going. So we need to look at how can we adapt to change because our systems have evolved, behavior has evolved, demands have evolved. And frankly, we have the technology to really evolve as well so that we have a better fit for some of the mechanisms and how that, that fair balance needs to be separated. Thank you again so much for speaking with me today, Monica. To close out the podcast, we have our now infamous fintech jail. So this is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword, or trend that you've seen or heard enough of. So what would your selection be for this week? So I had a couple that I was thinking of, but I think the, the one that I will land on is chargeback compliance. I think we put that term in jail. So, I mean, what is it? Is this just a t- another case of like you were mentioning before, just the, the vagary around the term and it's we just need a bit more maybe terminology in there or to, to start segmenting things to, to make sure things are a bit clearer? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's so challenging because you think what is chargeback compliance, right? A great statistic that Visa has stated is that up to 75% of chargebacks are friendly fraud or are first party fraud, chargeback fraud, right? They shouldn't have happened, so they're invalid chargebacks. Well, if I'm a merchant and I think, or even a bank, right? And I think, all right, I received 10 chargebacks and seven of them shouldn't have happened. They're like, they're illegal chargebacks. So they actually, it's not fair. Then what is chargeback compliance? Because all 10 are labeled as a chargeback and I paid a penalty for all 10. And I have a negative statistic for all 10 that is indelible, that even if I dispute the seven and I win the money back for the transaction value, what is the compliance? Because how we've defined it is that those 10 are considered chargebacks and we can never challenge that negative statistic. Now, there's opportunities to refund a pre-chargeback or a dispute inquiry and maybe prevent it. But there again, there's not enough technology, I think, to really codify what does this mean. And then further, the more when I was thinking about this term, it's really fascinating when you consider that the chargeback system was defined and established in the 70s. We are so, we are light years ahead of anything from the 70s. And you look at where payments have gone I mean, we have wearables, we have all sorts of different payment methods and the world has changed so much on that spectrum. But when it comes to chargebacks, literally very little has changed. (laughs) It's, It's like, it's still, it's a very archaic manual process with very little change. So, and the other interesting thing is that in the seventies, this was established for consumer protection. So consumer protection is very different than a compliance statistic for merchants. And for consumer protection, it makes complete sense that you would always favor the consumer. So in other words, of course, I'm going to say, you know what? It's a guilty before proven innocent because I want consumers to feel secure. 
So I'm always going to put their interests first. But the minute that we start looking at chargebacks as also doubling as a compliance statistic, you don't have balance because if it's compliance, well, it should be that merchants are innocent before proven guilty because you have a penalty. So this is an issue that I have when reconciling the current situation where we're at because you have a consumer protection scenario where it, it does make sense, but it's being used more and more as penalty and compliance statistics, in which case I think we should challenge that term and like reimagine how the space needs to work. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was what actually was going to be asking next, really. I mean, what, what do you think would be the next steps to really drive that change then in the space? I think the next steps really require some, I, I hate to jump on the bandwagon with the latest, greatest word of collaboration on every single level, right? But it does, uh, the problem in our industry today is we have fragmentation, we have a lack of standards, there's conflicts of interest, there's bias. And so in order to address these concerns, it really does require input from every stakeholder. And when we first got into this business, interestingly, I look back, I was so ignorant. I, I actually thought that the only victims in the entire ecosystem were merchants. And I thought all banks were just victimizing merchants. Well, then the more that you get educated about this issue, then you start to appreciate how complex and complicated the problem is. And the reality is we all share the same enemy. It's an arduous statistic. It's painful. And it's equally as painful for merchants, issuers, acquirers, and cardholders with a lot of damage trickling down to all. So in order to really create the change and the innovation that's needed, I think it takes industry leaders, thought leaders joining together, collaborating First and foremost, making a decision that how things are operating today really is not something that is sustainable. And we need to change the way that the chargeback mechanism is supporting the world's transaction movement, because frankly, it is a totally different world than it was 30 to 50 years ago. And this is in the best interest of maintaining brand integrity, integrity of transactions, really creating a scalable matrix because we're always going to have disputes between buyers and sellers. It's just human nature. It will never go away. And the reality is we should have a mechanism that's fluid enough and agnostic and fair on all sides of the equation to not just support cards, but also afford buyers and sellers the ability to compete in any type of payment method all over the world. So yeah, the bad news is there's some problems to solve. The good news is there's problems to solve. <laughs> so it's good to have opportunities for improvement. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely understand. I think, as you mentioned, I'm happy to throw this into the jail for now until the problems have been solved. Like you say, hopefully we can, everyone works together and maybe a couple of years down the line or something, we can start thinking about it, letting it back out again. But for now... Yeah, like I said, I'm happy to throw it in. But thank you again, Monica, so much for, for taking the time out to speak with me. It's, it's been a pleasure this week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have time for for this week's episode. Thanks, of course, to Monica for joining me. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at fintechfutures.com, on X at Fintech Futures, and of course on LinkedIn. 
If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. Thanks as well to Arama for editing this podcast. You can check them out at arama.tv. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.